What is up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Paul Prescott. This is the second week in a row that Nando is off, but don't worry, he'll be back next week. Uh, And he's been doing other programming for Jacobin, which you can check out on Jacobin's YouTube channel. I highly recommend it. An interview with uh, Zizek was uh, done, I think, this week. Uh, Jen Pan was also part of it. It was great. Just watched that this morning. Zizek, it's always a fun ride to interview him. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny because I just rewatched his interview with Jordan Peterson uh. and it's, it's a great, and it really, uh, not interview his debate. Uh, and yeah. it was great. It was a really great, great debate, which if you haven't checked it out, definitely watch that. Um, we've got a great show ahead for you guys today. Uh, so we're going to get into a discussion about the initial means testing that was implemented in the child uh, care subsidy program that's part of the budget reconciliation bill. We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, I'm doing my decode today, Paul, on child labor because mm. there are some states that are trying to roll back regulations pertaining to child labor, which I mean... It's America. I guess this is something that we should be expecting. And uh, what are you talking about today? Yeah, well, since we are still in striketober and hopefully we're rolling into strike strike vember or whatever, whatever we can call that. um, I'm going to be talking about, you know, how we can support strikes because, you know, it's not just enough to go on strikes. But like how as supporters, what can we do to support strikes as the public make sure they win? I love that. And later on, we're also going to have an we're also going to have an interview with uh, Zoran Mamdami, who is an assembly member for the 36th district in New York. We're going to talk about the hunger strike that's currently taking place in regard to um, taxi drivers and the uh, debt that absolutely should be forgiven for the medallions that they've spent way too much money on. So uh, we'll get to that and more. Uh, But I want to bring in our guest. We have a guest at the top of the uh, rundown today. Matt Brunig joins us to discuss uh, the provision in the budget reconciliation bill regarding child care. Now, Matt, you uh, succeeded in getting Democrats to rewrite the provision because your analysis noticed that while Democrats were kind of you know, publicizing this as something that would be capped at 7% of their household income, the way the provision was written didn't necessarily indicate that. And so I wanted to ask you about your analysis, ask you about what the update to the provision is. Um, So let's get right into it. And for those of you who might not know, Matt Brunick is with the People's Policy Project, which is where he wrote the analysis. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So let me just uh, start off with, um, you know, the Democrats' child care plan. It, it rightly mandates that child care workers need to be paid more, right? So their pay would need to be similar to what elementary school teachers make. It's not a lot of money, but it's certainly better than what they're getting paid now. Um, you write that the median child care worker is currently paid $25,460 per year, while the median elementary school teacher is currently paid $60,660 per year. Thus, this mandate could increase child care worker pay by 138%, which I think makes sense. That's the good part of the provision. However, you notice that that increase in salaries for child care workers would mean an increase in the cost of childcare. So without getting into specifics about how that would be funded, um, how would that impact the overall cost of childcare? Uh, it would increase it uh, in the, in the, in the post I said from about $15,000 to $28,000 a year talking about infant care. Um, 
And uh, the Center for American Progress actually had a similar figure for what would the price increase that would uh, result from going from what they call base quality care to high quality care, which is essentially the same kind of idea, higher wages, higher quality mandates, higher credential mandates, all of which is in the bill. So yeah, 15,000 to 28,000. Now there was some, you know, room to debate about, you know, what precisely would it be? And obviously that's a national figure. It would vary state to state. It might not all happen in the first year. It could happen in the second year or the third year. There's room to fight about these things and there's uncertainty, but the fact that that number is going to go way up is I think hard to, to argue against. Yeah. So how exactly do Democrats propose to pay for the increased cost? Because regardless of what the exact figures are, as we know, if you're going to pay the workers more, which they absolutely deserve, um, the overall cost is going to be more. How exactly do Democrats propose paying for that? Yeah, so the original idea was, you know, the, basically the federal government's going to kick in a lot of cash. And the easiest way to think about it is each parent would have to pay a certain percentage of their income towards their child care. So it's literally called a co-payment. Uh, if you recall from health insurance, they copy that vernacular over. And if you make less than 75% of your state median income, you'll have no co-payment. If you make between 75% and 100%, your co-payment will be 2% of your income. And on and on it goes up to 7%. And that's already kind of a goofy structure, but that's the basic idea. And any amount that you owe in excess of your co-payment, the government will pay. Um, mm-hmm. the, pr- the problem was that they... In addition to having that, which is already a means test, right? It's already sliding scale co-payments based on your income. In addition to that, they created this hard cliff where if your income was over, depending on the year, 100% of the median income or 115% or 130% or 150%, they create this hard line where if you make $1 over that amount, instead of paying whatever percentage of your income you're supposed to pay, you pay the whole bill. And so $1 step could cost you 13000 I mean, if you have two kids, it could cost you literally, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars um, $30,000 if you had two kids in child care. Um, and, you know, these are people who, depending on where you set the line, if you set the line at 130% of the median income or something, these are, you know, people are doing okay, but it, it's not anything more than, you know, what two people making, I don't know, $65,000 a year if they're a married couple might make. And that's the average wage, you know. Right. Yeah. So basically, the way that it was written would force uh, some families in the middle class to essentially pay more than they're currently paying for for child care. Um, So, uh, Paul, did you want to jump in? I don't want to step on your toes. Yeah, well, I mean, one question I have is like, I mean, this crazy, stupid, complicated way the Democrats are writing this bill and so many other bills. And I always wonder how much of this is deliberate, how much of it is their brains are truly just have been colonized this way you know i mean how much of this is deliberate versus not really knowing versus you know being so bought into this ideology that they do things this way yeah you know it's so funny because the the package of family benefits there were four of them they they all were radically different (laughs) you know it's like you don't see a specific idea about the welfare state right so pre-k which is, we call it pre-K, it's child care for ages three and four. I mean, I know there's some instructional component, but <laughs> pre-K is, is just a universal free program. That's mm-hmm. how they set it up, just like K through 12. 
And but then you go to ages zero, one, and two, and you get this crazy design. And this design is clearly inspired by the Obamacare exchanges because they work exactly the same way, where you have to pay a certain percentage of your income, and the government picks up the excess. That's assuming you get an exchange plan. And then there's a hard cliff. Uh, in the Obamacare, it was at four hundred percent of the federal poverty line. You made one dollar over that, you pay the full premium. They're trying to fix that with this bill, but that was clearly just they just copied over Obamacare. Pre-K, they just copied over K through 12, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go through the child benefit, and it looks very, like the child tax credit stuff looks similar to what you'll see in other countries. It does have a means test at the top, but it's much more universal than than what they normally throw out there. So it's like, it's all over the map, and it, it almost just kind of seems like it depends on which which department and which think tank, you know, like what personality managed to get the assignment, you know? Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And I'm wondering, is that for the child care, did they have this provision kind of set this way from the very beginning? Or did the means testing come in following um, Manchin's objections to doing anything that would actually materially benefit anyone's life? This design was established in 2015 with uh, a paper that the Center for American Progress put out. Everything since then on childcare has all just been riffing off of that paper. So it's not like it was a political, you know, this was uh, something they horse traded away. The design was bad when it came out of CAP, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's funny, you know, pre-K, the pre-K thing also, I mean, a lot of people have written on that, but... That also came ostensibly out of cap, and it looks totally different. Um, but yeah, I don't think this was a compromise case. Because here's the thing. Manchin is actually for universal pre-K. He's fine. He doesn't mind the fact that it doesn't have any means test or anything like that. When he was governor of West Virginia, he created universal pre-K for four-year-olds mm-hmm. in the state. Um, so he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. He has problems with other parts of the bill. Um, but, but this bad design seems to come from the outside and now we're kind of stuck with it. And it's like the template that we're all working off of, you know? Yeah. I mean, whenever I think about these lawmakers and why they act the way they do, I mean, I don't really like to think about whether they're good or bad. It's more about incentives and disincentives. So why is it that out of all the provisions um, in this reconciliation bill, universal pre-K was the least controversial, right, for, for the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, they didn't really attack it the way that um, other provisions were attacked. Uh, what was the incentive in wanting to kind of like uphold this universal program? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, some people would say that, you know, by calling it pre-K, it conjures up in the imagination the idea that it's education. And certainly there are studies that show that, you know, people who go in pre-K, they might do a little bit better in school later on. It's not dramatic, but, you know, a little bit. Um, and so maybe that was the difference. So for for them, they immediately kind of think through K through 12. And so where do you have K through 12? That model exists. If this is pre-K, it's school. It's not child care. It's school then maybe we just copy the school model. <laughs> and then when you go flip your mind to childcare, and then you're just like, no, that's a totally radical, you know, it's like, it's just what, how you get primed to think about the benefit. That's what it almost seems like to me. Yeah. And uh, can I just add in, I mean, it's amazing how they shoot themselves in the foot with this kind of thing. And I, I see a similar thing with like raising the minimum wage. I mean, for the argument that small businesses wouldn't be able to afford it, I think there's a simple answer of state subsidies for those businesses that could not afford it. And I think it's similar with, with childcare. There's like an, a simple solution here 
if the state would be willing to do that, but they're not. And that just opens the door to all these counter arguments against it. Yeah. Well, and childcare is, you know, if you think about how most welfare states work, children are one of the big recipients of benefits because children don't work and they need resources. And it's similar to elderly people, right? They're retired. They need resources. So we give them the old age pension, disabled people. Children are just another group in that bunch. And so the case for subsidizing childcare is not just that, well, you can pay higher wages if you have public subsidy. It's also just that when people have kids, we don't want their incomes to decline or their, you know, their standard of living to decline by $20,000 or $30,000. We would rather have that smoothed out across the whole population so that maybe every year you pay an extra few hundred dollars in taxes and then across your entire life that all balances out. But you're not hit with these huge punctuated costs when you have a kid Um, in the same way that we don't want people to have huge punctuated costs when they uh, get an illness or get hit by a car or something like that. It's the same kind of social insurance idea of keeping people smooth and steady and not, you know, punching them really hard with these big bills that they can't really get out of. Right. Uh, And so before I ask you about how Democrats kind of recalibrated this provision, um, just to rewind so the audience knows where we're at and where Democrats went, um, you wrote in your piece that in the first three years of the program, families with incomes that are just one dollar over 100 percent of the median income, that's in year one, uh, 115% of the median income year two or 130% of the median income year three will be eligible for zero subsidies, meaning that they will be on the hook for the entire unsubsidized price, which as discussed above will now be at least $13,000 per year higher than before. Now, after your analysis, they did rework the provision. What did they do? Yeah, so for the first three years, they bumped up the percentages. So it, instead of 115, I think it's now 125. And then instead of 130, it's now 150. And then there was also a discussion, um, I guess in the interim, there was a decision to say that the, the final amount was going to be 150% or 100, 250% of the me- or excuse me, yeah, 150% or 200% of the median. There was like discussions in the Senate of, where are we going to put the final cliff? You know, like there's going to be a benefit cliff at the end where you make $1 more, you pay the full price, but where is it going to be? And the discussions were, was that where they're going to set it at 150%. And that's what all the reporters were getting, talking to senators and all that kind of stuff. There was a big response to this piece. Uh, there was, it was written up in Politico, it was written up in NBC, the Chamber of Commerce started pushing it, which is kind of strange, but you know, they have bad intentions, but nonetheless, it gets people's attention. Um, and they moved the threshold from what was probably going to be 150% of the median income, right? You make $1 more than that, you lose all your benefits, to 250% of the state median income, which is pretty high. I think something like maybe 5% of people make more than that. Um, so it doesn't solve the problem entirely, but it solves, you know, I don't know, 80, 90% of the problem, at least in year four, you know, so. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, final question for me. I, what would have been a, a far better way of, of drafting this provision? They'd just do the pre-K. I mean, they've got it right there. Just extend that number from three to zero and you're good to go. You don't really need to do anything else. Yeah. Just do the thing. Just do, just the, do thing. the thing. Exactly. I mean, Democrats <laughs> love the means testing. They love these like 
clunky provisions that, you know, I think at the end end up like creating resentment <laughs> among working people, right? People who might not uh, qualify because of those hard cliffs. Absolutely. And I mean, there are so many other problems with this. Um, you know, we could go into those if you wanted to, but I don't want to take up your time. So, yeah, I mean, well, I actually am very curious, like what you want to talk about, like, because I, I agree with you 100%. The reconciliation bill as it stands today um, is incredibly flawed, uh, has taken out so many of the critical provisions that would have actually made a difference in people's lives. We don't have time to talk about all of it, but do you want to pick one provision that stands out to you? Yeah, I meant specifically on the child care plan. So one of the problems was that income cliff. Um, another problem is they have what's called an activity test. So kids are only eligible for the child care benefits if their parents are engaged in one of a long list of activities. One of the activities is work, but then they have other things like if you're in school or whatever. And that test, according to the Congressional Research Service, is going to exclude 5% of kids from eligibility. And we're talking about like really poor kids, right, who parents are not involved in jobs or education or training or anything like that. They're not going to be eligible anymore. And then uh, I, the reason I thought of that when you're talking about resentment is they write these leg they write these rules and I don't think they fully think through the mechanics of how it's actually going to work. So like one of the eligible activities that a parent can be engaged in that if they do it they're now eligible for childcare assuming their income's also below a certain level. One of the eligible activities in the bill is that they are in health treatment, including mental health and substance use disorder treatment that prevents them from engaging in other eligible activities. And you're like, oh, that's very nice. Like, you, you know, if you're not working, at least if you're in rehab, your kid can go to childcare. That sounds very nice. But then you're also thinking like, so this parent now has to communicate to whoever, right, right. the daycare provider or the state agency, they have to say, uh, you know, here's proof that I, I have a really bad mental health disorder and I, I can't work because of it. And it's like, do you, it's just, why put that on people? You know? It feels like college admissions, like prove how many clubs and after school activities you've been involved in, you know? Yeah, but at least there you're kind of proud of it. You know, right. I don't want to tell right. someone that I'm, you know, well, I was in rehab. I'm sorry. That's why I wasn't working, but please keep the childcare flowing, you know? Yeah, it's just this like punitive system that um, really prioritizes this notion of like personal responsibility and like, do you deserve it? Right. Like I, that's the part of Democrats and, and the way that they write policy that like really, really gets under my skin because it's just it's exactly the kind of thinking or the type of mentality that you see from conservatives over and over again. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. like this idea of having to yeah. like drug test welfare recipients and things like that. It's just like needlessly demonizing people who need a little help. Absolutely. Yeah. Piss in the yeah. cup so your kid can go to child care. And then they turn around and they wonder why people are skeptical of government programs. It's like, right. that's hell. You know, if I want to go buy something from Amazon, Jeff doesn't make me piss in the cup. But if I want to use child care, I've got to tell them my mental health history. I mean, it's, it's that's a terrible, terrible service, you know. And I think they've convinced themselves that voters are looking for this. Like voters mm -hmm. wouldn't support it unless there was these punitive measures. And it's just like, no, just just do the thing. Just they want child care. They'll be fine with they it. They also have no idea what's in these things. Vo right, voters, exactly. voters still think that welfare, which was basically eliminated in 1996, they still think it exists. Like, right. like a lot of them still think that it's real. And you can go to the welfare office and they just give you a chip. That, that hasn't existed for 25 years and a large percentage. So it's like... 
you know, you're not going to win this game of like, well, let's do it this way. And then public opinion will, they'll, they'll take note of these changes and these like minute rules. People are, they don't have information that that's, that's as detailed as that, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Matt, um, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, we asked you to come on kind of last minute and you were willing to do it. And thank you for the work you're doing. It, I mean, it made an important change to the way the provision was written. Um, I wish they would take all your advice, uh, but really you're doing great work. Everyone go check out Matt Brunig over at the People's Policy Project. This is the article that I was specifically referring to. It's titled Democratic Child Care Plan Will Spike Prices for the Middle Class by $13,000. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Matt, our uh, Jackman's resident welfare king. You he's, know? he's awesome. Okay. Absolutely awesome. Um, all right. Well, why don't we bring in Kale, uh, super producer Kale Brooks, uh, mm. to tell us a little bit about our partner. Yeah, real quick. Hey, guys. Uh, so typically, this is where we would do the Verso Book Club read, but we don't have the Verso Book Club this month. So instead, there is the Verso Book Club. You can join it. We read the wrong read in September. Uh, but instead, you should check out some recently published and soon to be published books from Verso, including this one, uh, Who Owns the Wind? Climate Crisis and the Hope of Renewable Energy by David McDermott Hughes, which argues for transforming renewable power into a common resource. Naomi Klein says that David Hughes is doing some of the most innovative thinking and writing about energy democracy in the world. You should also check out uh, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine by the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn. Based on years of wide-ranging research, Coburn lays bare the ugly reality of the largest military machine in history. We also interviewed Coburn last week. You should check that out. Uh, and finally, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, 20 Years After 9-11 by Deepa Kumar, critically acclaimed analysis of anti-Muslim racism from the 16th to the 21st centuries with a new forward by Nadine Nadabar. Nabar. Uh, not going to get that one. <laughs> you can't All replace right. Nando with these, you know. Nando, he has the, he's got he has the, the art down, right? Yep. But uh, you did a good job, Kale. Thank you for doing that. All right. Well, why don't we get to our decode segments? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to continue on with the theme regarding children, uh, because there was some pretty awful news out of Wisconsin this week regarding child labor. And so I felt like it'd be a good opportunity to kind of go into the history of uh, child labor regulations, how they came about, and why it's so important to um, not only maintain them, but strengthen them. So let's talk. In response to labor shortages, Wisconsin's state Senate decided to vote in favor of a bill that would loosen child labor regulations in their state, which would allow children as young as 14 years old to work late into the night. Insider reports that Wisconsin currently sticks to federal child labor laws, which stipulate that people under the age of 16 can only work between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m., from June 1st to Labor Day, and between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. for the rest of the year. But in an effort to increase the pool of labor in the state uh, because of the so-called Great Resignation, uh, the lawmakers in Wisconsin are trying to do these companies in the state of solid by making it making minors available to work uh, later into the night. So Wisconsin Senate approved a bill that would allow 14 and 15 year olds to work from 6 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. on days before a school day and 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. when the next day is not a school day. The bill would keep in place federal rules limiting teens to three hours of work on a school day, eight hours on non-school days and six days a week of work, which 
is insane. I, I just think that you're 14 years old. Uh, you shouldn't be working six days a week. Uh, and I don't think you should be working late into the night. Now, the hotel and tourism industry uh, and its lobbyists are, of course, very much in favor of uh, what the Senate passed. And to be clear, it has not been signed into law in Wisconsin. We're just talking about this passing in the state Senate. But also the AFL-CIO, um, a federation of unions, uh, says, we absolutely should not be loosening these child labor laws. This is insane. And the AFL is important here. Uh, you should keep the a AFL in mind as I do this segment because they were really the first to draw attention to the problem of child labor back in the 1880s. Now, more on that later in the segment. And while loosening child labor regulation sounds uh, pretty insane, Wisconsin is not the only state that's turning to kids to fill jobs. Uh, a McDonald's in Medford, Oregon, um, has started advertising its willingness to hire children as young as 14 and 15 years old. And what made children so appealing uh, was that, you know, they were exploited for labor during the Industrial Revolution. And the fact they were exploited um, or the fact that they were able to work um, allowed for these uh, company owners to essentially pay them far less than they pay adult workers. Uh, that is something that's unfortunately being practiced even today. So minors get even less wage protection since they fall into a different category of workers. I'm not talking about back in the day. It was also true back in the day. I'm also talking about today. The way the regulations are written on a federal level are a little problematic because workers under the age of 20 can be paid as little as $4.25 an hour for up to 90 days of what they refer to as training. So they're working they're doing exactly the same job they do past the 90 days. But since they're training, the way the law is written uh, allows these companies to pay uh, the underage workers far less, $4.25 an hour. If a state has a higher minimum wage, that would supersede the minor wage. Now, if we're specifically looking at a state like Wisconsin, what does that mean? Well, Wisconsin's minimum wage is tied to the federal minimum wage rate. A special minimum wage of $5.90 per hour and $2.13 per hour for tipped employees is applicable to opportunity employees, I love the way that they phrase that, under 20 years old who have worked for less than 90 days with their current employer. That's problematic enough, but when you think about the fact that lobbyists right now basically control any and all legislation... It's kind of terrifying to think about, you know, the potential of these lobbyists paying these politicians in the form of legalized bribes to further loosen those restrictions, right? Because they can be paid that uh, smaller wage for up to 90 days, but there's no rule indicating that lobbyists are banned from lobbying our lawmakers to increase that threshold from like 90 days to like three years if they want. So that's something that I'm a little bit concerned about, to say the least. But Wisconsin's attempt to loosen child labor regulations is not an isolated case either. We've seen other instances. So, for instance, you have former Republican congressman and Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who was notorious for making statements that suggested child labor laws were nonsensical and that they needed to be repealed. In fact, here's a particularly awful argument he made in favor of firing adult janitors to replace them with school-aged workers. The core policies of protecting unionization and bureaucratization against children in the poorest neighborhoods 
crippling them by putting them in schools that fail has done more to create income inequality in the United States than any other single policy. It is tragic what we do in the poorest neighborhoods in trapping children in, first of all, in child laws, which are truly stupid. Okay, you say to somebody, you shouldn't go to work before you're what, 14, 16 years of age. Fine. You're totally poor. You're in, a, you're in a school that is failing with a teacher that is failing. I tried for years to have a very simple model. Most of these schools ought to get rid of the unionized janitors, have one master janitor, and pay local students to take care of the school. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd, right? Rather than take a look at the problem of child poverty in the country, Newt Gingrich's solution, by the way, in the richest country in the world, was not to make these children whole, was not to really take a step back and look at the way our system is structured uh, that puts these people in a disadvantage. His solution is, why don't we just put them to work? Why don't we put children to work? But of course, we got to fire the unionized janitors first. I mean, it just gives you a sense of the kind of thinking you see, not just from the Republican Party. We see similar thinking from liberals as well these days who are far more interested in arguments regarding fiscal responsibility rather than um, really having a discussion about redistributing wealth. Now, in order to fully understand, to really understand how devastating rolling back child labor laws would be, we have to remember how brutal the practice was, and how much workers had to sacrifice just to end the practice. In fact, a 1933 article in The Nation titled Children on Strike described the horrifying working conditions for children in Pennsylvania specifically. Obviously, there were incredibly long hours. One boy said he worked from 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. and then returned to the factory three nights each week to work from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m., Others told of being ordered to hide in the cellar and on fire escapes when state inspectors came to the mill. Their pay was ridiculously low already, with wages being uh, deducted by bosses who had fees, taxes, and other fines to pay. For instance, 14-year-old Martin Crowbuth, uh, a trimmer, explained um, how the Dashevsky brothers saved the two-cent check tax by assessing each employee. The boy said his last check for six days' work was 96 cents, but he did not get all of that. An additional 10% was uh, deducted as a wage cut together with the two cents for the check tax. Uh, There was another example given. Another Allentown employer developed an even better system. He deducted 33 cents a week from the pay envelopes of each child to repay a fine of $100 assessed by the state for his failure to carry workman's compensation insurance. Um, Frank Selfoffer considered the fastest trimmer in the plant received $1.73 for two weeks of work. And of course, uh, children at the time were uh, coerced and even raped by their bosses. A Titian-haired girl receiving 55 cents a week said the mill superintendent offered her uh, a 100% wage increase if she would accept his attentions at least three times weekly. Others, mere children, told of being taken to New York hotels for weekends as playthings for the owners of the factories and for the purpose of enticing buyers to purchase shirts made in their mills. I mean, just absolutely horrific stories, horrific stories that were told, um, not just in this piece, but in um, activist groups at the time who were trying to end the practice. 
So as the title of the Nation article notes, the children went on strike to improve their working conditions, despite the risks associated with standing up to their bosses. So Hale A. Gus, borough manager of Northampton, told the governor's commission that either Harry or Nathan Dashevsky, De- uh, who operate one of the world's uh, sweatshops, or the worst, I should say, sweatshops in the Lee Valley, Lehigh Valley, the D&D shirt company suggested having a gun planted on a union organizer. Another state official, a woman said that one of the Dashevskys um, asked her why he couldn't have National Guardsmen to protect his mill against the baby strikers, as they were referred to. Why, she asked, aren't the police sufficient protection? Yes, he said, but they won't fight. He wanted to call in National Guardsmen to fight children who were striking as a result of their awful, horrific working conditions. But today, think tanks and right-wing organizations try to launder the true ugliness of child labor, hoping to propagandize Americans into thinking the brutality of that practice was anything but. Here's a video from Learn Liberty's uh, YouTube channel doing just that. Are we doing something wrong by buying the products made with her labor? I'm Benjamin Powell. I direct the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University, where I'm also an economics professor. I've spent over a decade studying sweatshops and child labor in poorer countries around the world. We feel bad when we buy products made with child labor. But most children who work in poorer countries don't work making us products. They work in agriculture or household services. It's only a small minority that work in manufacturing. And those manufacturing jobs tend to pay better than working in agriculture or services. And in the case of agriculture, injury rates are higher for children. When we stop buying products made with child labor, it doesn't cure their poverty. It just pushes more children into these other less desirable sectors of their economy. Yeah, child labor is great. I mean, we're doing them a solid by making sure that they're manufacturing our products so we can you know, consume them as cheaply as possible here in the United States. I mean, absolutely disgusting argument. But the most laughable part about Learn Liberty's video was the revisionist history that was uh, implemented in regard to the United States and its practice of child labor. Now, pay close attention to how he claims child labor ended in the country. Many people think child labor doesn't exist because we have laws against it today. But when we were as poor as these countries are in the third world, we didn't have laws against child labor, and the laws we had weren't restrictions at all. It wasn't until 1938 that we had our first national anti-child labor law here in the United States. By then, our incomes were up over $10,000 per person in today's terms. But when we look around the world today, countries that have incomes of $10,000 don't have any child labor anyway. Children don't work because their parents are mean or stupid. They work because they're desperately poor and they need the meager income from the child to feed and clothe the family. As the process of economic development happens, incomes go up and children cease working. And then only later do countries adopt laws that prohibit child labor. The real cure for child labor is adopting institutions that support economic freedom, private property rights, and the rule of law. When that happens, the process of economic development occurs and child labor is ended all on its own. I mean, I, I don't think you guys need me to explain how much of a garbage argument that really was, right? This this idea that, no, no, we, I mean, these wonderful uh, corporations, these wonderful companies, these executives, um, you know, just didn't need to pay children anymore because there was so much wealth to go around. 
Now, as we know, capitalism is a system that uh, seeks to maximize profit. And in order to maximize profit, you got to definitely treat your workers pretty horrifically. That means lowering their pay, uh, putting them in awful working conditions, and yes, finding people who will work for the cheapest uh, wage possible. And that's why they took advantage of children. It wasn't uh, because of a lack of wealth to go around. It's complete nonsense. In fact, considering the baby strikers referenced earlier, child labor didn't just go away all on, on its own here in the United States. Much like all federal workplace regulations, protecting children from a system of exploitation and profit-seeking had to be fought by the workers. So in it actually took decades of labor activity and strikes to make that happen. Progressive reformers became alarmed at the growing number of child workers. They formed organizations in the early 1900s devoted to the healthy development of children. One of those organizations, the National Child Labor Committee, hired Lewis Wicks Hine to photograph children at work and to expose their harsh conditions. Hines' images brought national attention to the difficult life of millions of children. Over the next 20 years, the NCLC and other organizations investigated child labor abuses and continued to push for state legislation that would take children out of the workforce and put them in schools. Finally, by 1929, every state had restrictions preventing children under 14 from working. Now, obviously, those are state-level regulations that, in some cases, did not go far enough, especially in southern states that relied on child labor for cotton picking. Uh, here is a video explaining that in more detail. National legislation against child labor would take another decade because business and industry continued to oppose it. In fact, one of the major reasons that national legislation about child labor didn't make it past the Supreme Court until 1938. I mean, it's unbelievable to us that there was no federal legislation against child labor until almost 1940, was because essentially the Southern cotton interests and Midwestern coal, iron, steel interests combined to fight this legislation to stop child labor. In 1938, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which restricted child labor and continues to protect workers to this day. So 1938, FDR passes uh, federal regulations that impact child labor, child labor practices. But even that video doesn't really give you the whole story. FDR didn't just do this out of the kindness of his own heart. He was pressured to do it. And there was a great deal of labor activity uh, that made that happen. The first move, in fact, to end uh, the practice of child labor in the United States was made by the American Federation of Labor in 1881. So just think about the time span here. Uh, 1881, the AFL uh, decides to uh, pass a resolution regarding child labor uh, during one of their meetings. And then uh, it takes literally decades until 1938 for anything to be done on a federal level. So as I mentioned, the AFL uh, passed a resolution calling on states to ban, just completely ban children under the age of 14 from all gainful employment. And uh, this did kick off protests and strikes. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the strikes 
that I'm going to talk about in just a little uh, little bit has to do with Mother Jones. Uh, but take a look at workers uh, staging strikes and demonstrations uh, in order to do something about child labor. Individual workers and social reformers in the 1800s and 1900s fought against child labor, dangerous working conditions, long hours, and bad wages. But they had little power until labor unions were formed. Striking was an effective bargaining tool, but going on strike was not just a parade. It was more like a rebellion, and the situation could be terrifying and dangerous. Local and national governments treated strikes as civil unrest and often dispatched armed troops to break them up. Workers were injured, and many died as they clashed with police and National Guard. Unions worked very hard to demand legislation that brought about an end to child labor in this country. Unions over the years have fought for legislation to protect workers on the job, but also to protect the living conditions and living standards of working people. Yeah, it seems like uh, this narrative kind of conflicts with what we heard from our little Texas professor who claimed that, you know, all of a sudden things changed out of the kindness of corporations' hearts. That's not how it worked. Uh, these strikes put a lot on the line for workers. They did uh, sacrifice quite a bit to change uh, the regulations to ensure that there was uh, workplace protections, not only for children, but for workers overall. In fact, one of the pivotal moments um, in the fight to end child labor was the so-called March of the Mill Children in 1903, which was led by Mother Jones. On July 5th, Mother Jones approached the strike leaders with a plan to march from Kensington, Pennsylvania to Oyster Bay, New York, the summer home of President Theodore Roosevelt. She hoped to take a group of mill children with her to raise public awareness of child labor and gain financial support for the Kensington strikers. On July 7th, the March of the Mill Children began with fifes and drums playing a stirring marching tune and strikers carrying banners reading, we are textile workers, and 55 hours or nothing. On July 26th, the marchers were invited to visit Coney Island by the owner of the wild animal show there, Mr. Frank Bostock. He allowed Mother Jones to take control of his show. She even went so far as to place some of the children in cages behind her as she delivered one of her most famous speeches. We want him to hear the wail of the children who never have a chance to go to school, but work from 10 to 11 hours a day in the textile mills of Philadelphia, weaving the carpets that he and you walk on and the curtains and clothes of the people. Mother Jones's way of speaking was gruff and her manners harsh, but people left her speeches weeping. They marched to Roosevelt's summer home. I mean, just keep that in mind as protesters get demonized for protesting in front of lawmakers' homes. Just think about that. But while the march was ultimately, um, it failed in implementing federal uh, child labor laws, uh, what it did do is uh, it became a successful way of changing the perception of workplace practices among Americans. So later, the National Child Labor Committee, which was referenced earlier, was formed uh, with the goal of continuing that, right? Promoting the rights, awareness, dignity, well-being, and education of, of children and youth as they relate to work and working. That was their um, whole objective. And so the National Child Labor Committee, organized in 1904, 
and state child labor committees employed flexible methods in the face of slow progress. They pioneered tactics like investigations by experts, the use of photography to spark outrage at the poor conditions of children at work, and persuasive lobbying efforts. Here's more on that. One of the first things the National Child Labor Committee did was to hire a photographer. They hired Lewis Hine, who was then their photographer for the next two decades. They sent him around the country to identify, find, and photograph children in exploitative situations. He promoted himself as a Bible salesman. He said he was bringing his camera along so he could photograph kids reading Bibles. A boy would say he was 13 when in fact he was 11. Or a girl would say she was 12 when in fact she might be 9. Lewis Hines' stark photographs influenced legislation over a period of roughly 35 years. This body of work on child labor represented how he thought and how he felt that children must not be exploited. He represents the most important photographer in terms of social advocacy and social change in the first half of the 20th century. Now, the National Child Labor Committee originally focused on changing labor laws on a state level. But once they got pushback from southern states, they realized that they needed to focus on the national level. And that's exactly what they did. So uh, there was some success in passing federal laws meant to protect children in both 1916 and 1918. uh, But unfortunately, Uh, Activists and labor ran into uh, the obstacle of the United States Supreme Court, which struck those regulations down as unconstitutional. The opponents of child labor sought a constitutional amendment authorizing federal child labor legislation. And guess what? It passed in 1924, though states were not keen to ratify it. There was so much pushback against it. Again, as I'm talking about these obstacles, just think about the revisionist history you heard from Learn Liberty. Just nonsense. Now, it would take another 14 years of labor activity and also the Great Depression to get the federal government to act and to do so aggressively. So the Fair Labor Standards of 1938 set a national minimum wage for the first time and also a maximum number of hours for workers in interstate commerce and also placed limitations on child labor. In effect, the employment of children under 16 years of age was prohibited in manufacturing and mining. The law was then further strengthened in 1949. That's when Congress amended the child labor law to also include businesses not covered in the 1938 law, like commercial agriculture, transportation, communications, and also public utilities. Now, fast forward to where we are today, and it's really terrifying to combine the lack of labor power in America with the right wing's lust for revisionist history. And then when you think about just how persuasive legalized bribery is in this country, uh, it's a little terrifying to think about the potential of these corporations lobbying our lawmakers to further loosen uh, some of the federal laws pertaining to child labor. With states moving to loosen these child labor laws, it is critical for workers to organize and unionize uh, in order to really shift the power dynamic, right, to prevent the rolling back of more 
of the progress that was made by workers, workers who sacrificed so much to ensure that conditions, not just for themselves, but for children and for future generations uh, would improve. And so, uh, Paul, I'd love to get your thoughts on all of this. It's it's really it's it's scary stuff yeah. when you think about, you know, how how far uh, capitalists are willing to go to maximize their profits and exploit people as young as fourteen. Right. You know, the the last time I came on weekends, I remember your segment was about the rollback of abortion rights, and I remember saying something like, you know, it's so easy to just assume some of these gains we've made in the past will never be rolled back. Like, how could they roll back Roe v. Wade? And I think this is another example. Like, we thought, man, child labor, that that's not coming back. We're, not, we're never going to go back to those days. But as we're seeing, like, that cannot be assumed. And, you know, it's incredible that that Learn Liberty doofus, you know, he, he did have a point that was based in a kernel of truth, which is that, you know, yeah, the reason for child labor is because their parents are not making enough. And and sadly, they, I'm sure there are many working class people and families that might be for child labor because in their eyes they're like, look, I need more income. I need my kid to work. But, you know, the solution is, of course, raising their wages. And I love how he said yeah. the solution is economic development, which implies like just let, you know, let the corporations do their thing. It's going to work out. But no, I mean, the you know, what started happening in, in the 1930s and 40s to start waging, uh, raising wages? That was a big growth of labor unions. Um, and that's what need, needs to happen. And it's interesting you brought up the Mother Jones story in Philadelphia. Um, I'd, I'd written an article about one of the first general strikes in this country was in Philadelphia in the textile mills for a 10-hour day. So in the 1820s, kids were working 12, 14 hours a day. And they struck just to get 10 hour a day, still child labor, but they at least have the kids working no more than 10 hours a day. Um, so, you know, that history is really important to show, like everything had to be fought for. You know, nothing was given in any sense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, there's a glaring solution there. Pay to an adult wage earner should make enough for their job, you know, period. Um, but it's it's crazy the way things are going. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know. Luckily, we're starting to see a little more um, labor activity. It's it's I'm optimistic. Uh, it's like a little bit of a silver lining in all of the terrible things that are happening in the news. Um, you know, I think that there's more of a consciousness about how important it is to organize and unionize. And uh, we've been covering the strikes uh, on this show. And luckily, Paul, you're going to give us yeah. some more information about how we can uh, help uh, assist those strikers, even if we're not uh, working with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you said, the left, we have been buzzing with excitement about Striketober, this wave of worker militancy that we haven't seen in this country in a long time. John Deere workers, Kellogg's workers, hospital workers, carpenters, all kinds of workers are striking. And one would expect that in social circles of leftists, people who watch the Jackman show, we would see this as a positive development, of course. But a more important question is how does the rest of the general public feel about these strikes? Well, we do have some good news about this. The Huffington Post reported on polling done by the AFL-CIO, the main labor federation in this country, saying the AFL-CIO Labor Federation commissioned the progressive pollster Data for Progress to take the public's temperature on the strikes that have made headlines this summer and fall. The online survey of nearly 1,300 likely voters asked if they, quote, approve or disapprove of employees going on strike in support of better wages, benefits, and working conditions. 74% of respondents either strongly approved or somewhat approved of the strikes, 
while just 20% strongly disapproved or somewhat disapproved of them. 6% did not have an opinion. And what's doubly encouraging about this is that it seems like the support for workers is crossing partisan identities. The article goes on to say, Not surprisingly, the backing of strikers was strongest among Democrats, 87% of whom approved of the walkouts. But support was still robust among independents and even Republicans, with 72% and 60% approval, respectively. The backing also crossed age groups, although respondents under 45 were more likely to voice strong approval than those above 45. Respondents who identified as black overwhelmingly said they supported the strikes, with 85% approval, compared to 70% of respondents who identified as white. And this news is not just nice to hear, it's actually critically important for the success of these strikes. The employer class relies on divide-and-conquer tactics, not just among workers in a given workplace, but among workers throughout society. As union density has plummeted, it has become easier to pit non-union workers against unionized ones. A group of workers could be really militant and strike, but if the general public is set against them, it becomes harder and harder to maintain the effectiveness of the strike. Building and maintaining broad public support for strikes should be a primary concern for socialists. So one reason is the basic fact that having strong community support helps striking workers win. But also because ultimately we want class-based fights to spill over and influence as much as the working class as possible. We want as many working people as possible to be paying attention to strike action and hopefully be inspired by it. We want more people to learn the specific lessons, like which side the police are ultimately on, or how the state intervenes on the side of the bosses. So it's great that right now there is high public support for this mini-strike wave that we're seeing. But unions and supporters of unions need to think hard about how to mobilize this support consistently in an organized way. And unions have a rich history of doing just this. And one example from the past are what was called the women's auxiliary groups that were attached to many unions. And they were often made up of the wives of male union members. Now, this was, of course, reflective of an age with a much more strict gender division of labor. And today we would not want to recreate this in the same way. But they were very effective organs for turning workplace struggles into community struggles. In the great Flint sit-down strike initiated by the United Auto Workers at GM in 1937, the women's auxiliary played a crucial role in carrying that strike to victory. Let's listen to some of these women. We made up our minds that we were going to be as big a part of it as the men. And we were, believe me. A few of the women started coming up with their husbands... A few of the factory girls decided that their jobs were at stake also, and they, in turn, would bring other women around. We were very optimistic. They needed protection, I thought. I was on the outside. I could do better there. We had to do something to help them to win this doggone strike. I was working down here in the kitchen, and uh, some guy from the hall come in and wanted to know who'd volunteer to take food to the strikers, and I said, I will. So then this boy here took the first food over there. Had a big old milk can of coffee and another full of soup. The police us up on top of the hill said, well, you don't want to go down there, lady. There's a lot of tear gas down there. I said, I've smelled that before. That don't bother me. Of 
some of the ladies, they would, uh, you know, uh, call us all kinds of things. Why don't you go and take care of your family? What are you doing out on the street here? But we had a lot of the ladies walk off the sidewalk, join us. They thought we was doing a great thing. Just a little tear gas. Don't worry about it. These groups often became institutionalized and a consistent part of the union structure. So unions today can organize the family of union members, of course not just women, as a consistent body of support. This would also create a greater sense of ownership and buy-in among workers with regard to their unions. It could also inspire future union activists. Imagine if a child grows up as part of the union family, I'd bet there's a higher chance that they'll want to be involved with unions in the future. More unions also need to frame their fights as being part as being for the benefit of all workers, not just their own members. This approach is called bargaining for the common good, where unions include demands that affect the broader communities in which they work, and in the process grow their base of support among people and organizations not affiliated with the union. There have been many examples of this, but perhaps one of the best recent examples was during the 2019 Los Angeles teacher strike, where throughout the strike, public school parents and students remained strongly supportive of the teachers despite the inconvenience it caused them. We are the teachers. We are the teachers. I do not have school today. It's important because if we don't go to school, the district doesn't get paid. And if it doesn't get paid, well, basically, it's like, it's like how they're feeling. Like They're going to feel like the teachers, basically, because they're, they're not paying enough. So when she said we're going to protest, she's like, if the sooner we start marching, the, like, the sooner the teachers are going to get paid. She sort of convinced me with those words. There's too many kids in my class. Like, there's about 30 of them, and I think we should like at least split the kids up into different classes. I'm going to check everybody in here at 7.30. You're welcome to come in and out of here so you can stay dry, and then there's chairs for you to sit, and then there should be water and cookies. Okay. And I'm just here just to uh, to do the same thing as my mom. Today it was like a great day. It's raining, it's really not that cold, and uh, it is really just good to see all these people marching. Now, admittedly, this is easier for public sector workers to do. As a teacher, I can say that fighting for small class sizes not only helps me as a teacher, but is also better for my students. A sanitation worker or a public transit operator can argue that more funding not only increases their pay, but will fund better services for citizens. But this is also possible in the private sector. One great example is the 1997 UPS strike, arguably one of the most successful national private sector strikes in the last 25 years. Their slogan was, part-time America won't work, and they framed their strike as part of a larger fight back against more precarious jobs for all Americans. I have a 15-month-old son at home, and I want a full-time job and full-time wages and a full-time pension so I can spend some time teaching my son my values. Uh, This strike is for him and for American families everywhere, and I am willing to sacrifice everything I have and as long as it takes to make sure that Americans know we cannot have a part-time America anymore. Now, I'm looking forward to retiring soon after 33 years with this company. 
So the company's proposal to take over my pension plan scares me. My mind strike is for my future, for my son and my family. That's why I'm here. I want a better job, a full-time job, something that he can look forward to. And the fact that these pilots and these auto workers and other people have come together, just plain ordinary people, to stand here sends a message about what kind of America do we want in the next century. So these are some things unions can do to gain more public support. But if you're not in a union, there are also many things you can do to support the strikes going on now and in the future. We're in a moment where there are so many left-leaning young people out there who support unions in theory, but don't have direct experience with them yet. Even just organizing a small group of friends to show up to a picket line means a lot to the workers who are out there on strike. The labor organizer and writer Jane McAlevey recently spoke with Teen Vogue about ways um, to do strike support, saying... Visiting a picket line also allows the community to get more details on what workers need and how allies can provide support. Do they need bottled water to keep marching in the summer heat? Maybe some hand warmers for a wintertime strike? Could they use snacks? Portable phone chargers? It can make a huge difference to have those needs met. Plus, getting involved is a great way to meet members of your own community with whom you might not otherwise interact. Remember, workers don't exist in a silo. They're just as much a part of our communities as anyone else. And joining a picket line could be the first step to strengthening those bonds. Being an organization can help to support strikes in a more coordinated way. For example, many DSA chapters across the country have turned their infrastructure towards supporting strikes. I'm going to take a second to brag about my DSA chapter in Philadelphia, which created the I'll Be There pledge to get people to sign up to support possible upcoming strikes. We use this list of people to mobilize whenever labor actions pop up. So doing strike support isn't just about feeling good. Sometimes it can literally be the difference between a strike that's successful and one that's not. It gives you a chance to meet working people where they're at and establish important political relationships. There is no greater political education than participating in a strike, even as a supporter. And so as Striketober hopefully rolls on, the left needs to focus on maintaining high levels of public approval so we don't let this opportunity pass us by. And Anna, you know, my first start politically was actually supporting a strike as a freshman in college. And that, that, I mean, that experience literally changed my life. You know, I I knew what unions were. Some people in my family were in them. Um, I started reading a lot about, you know, political theory. I think once you start reading like that, the question always becomes like, what the hell do we do about this terrible world? And that strike really provided me an answer. And like it would, you know, the workers won, there was great community support. And from that moment on, that kind of convinced me like the labor movement is one powerful way we can actually fight back as working people and win. Um, so, you know, I think getting involved in strike support is it's not just about helping them win in the moment, but I think it's important for developing people in the future. Absolutely. I mean, I think the best example in your segment was the kids who got involved, right? Because they see firsthand, first of all, like how fulfilling being part of that can be, but also the importance of, of union power, the importance of... Um, knowing that you can really change the system, like that the power dynamic can change if you uh, organize, get together and demand that it changes. Um, But what I I really appreciated about that UPS video, the strike uh, that the UPS did, um, was just like the argument that the woman was making that just has broad appeal, right? Learning how to, to frame things in a way 
that gets pretty much everyone on your side with the exception of the employers, right? So she talked about, um, you know, I, I want more time with my children to teach them my values. That's something that resonates with so many people across the country, whether they're, they're unionized or not. Um, so I, I totally agree right. with you in regard to the messaging for mobilizing people and getting getting as many people involved as possible um, to, to to not only help win, but to kind of like build uh, the right. labor movement on top of that. Yeah. And it's really important because, you know, and it shouldn't be this way, but the reality is many working people see unions as like a special interest group, a club that they're not a part of. And part of that is propaganda. But I think to overcome that, you've got to be able to craft arguments about, no, this is actually good for you. We're fighting for you, too, even though if you're not in the union right now. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, so yeah. I mean, speaking of strike support and supporting workers, I think this is a great time to bring in our guest. Um, so we are lucky today to be joined by um, Zoran Mandani, who's an assembly member of the 36th district of the New York State Assembly. He is also a DSA member, and he is currently um, participating in a hunger strike um, in solidarity with New York taxi workers who are demanding debt forgiveness. So thank you so much for joining us. You are very, very welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah. And I thought maybe we could start by, uh, we have a video queued up, um, created by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance that kind of uh, talks a little bit about what they're fighting for. We could play that. New York City knowingly inflated the price of the medallions and made $850 million off of these sales. The price in 2002 was $200,000. It skyrocketed to $800,000 just 12 years later. How did that happen? The collapse of the medallion market is one of the greatest government failures in the history of our city. And the humanitarian crisis of foreclosures and bankruptcies and suicides should not be seen as an accident. Not only were we complacent as a regulator, but we were complicit as a speculator through deceptive advertising, through approval of predatory transactions, through auctions. You know, there's like an actual real human impact in all of this. I owe about $560,000. I owe uh, $785,000. $372,000. $435,000 debt. I work all this time. I don't have no retirement, nothing. This is drivers that have sacrificed for the city, and the city just turned their backs on it. After months of our organizing, the city of New York responded with a fund, a medallion relief fund. Unfortunately, the TLC has come up with this plan. It's poorly structured. It's inadequate for far too many from the very start. So we need New York City to make a plan that will deliver real workable relief. If we take the city's plan, then most of the drivers would be forced to work 10-hour days and six days a week in order to take home less than minimum wage. How can you feed your family on that? We are calling on the city of New York to add a guarantee, have the city guarantee these loans so the risk is no longer on the backs of our members. Our families can finally survive. And on top of that, the lenders will have enough incentive to agree to the debt restructuring that we are talking about. We are going to stage a camp out in front of City Hall until our demands are met. You could come by, you could take pictures and speak to your elected officials, letting them know what is happening in New York City. We are going to press the city to do the right thing for you. We are not leaving the streets until justice is served. 
So, you know, this conflict kind of centers around the value of these medallions for taxicab drivers. So can you kind of explain, I mean, what what these medallions are? I had a hard time understanding them totally. You know, how, how did these prices rise so much? And what has been the, fe- the effect of these medallion prices um, on the drivers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that, you know, for, for those who don't know, medallions are the system by which the city licenses vehicles, um, for the privilege of picking up passengers across the five boroughs as, as a taxi. It was created in the earlier, earlier, um, sorry, it's the 10th day of a hunger strike. So I'm just having, having trouble sometimes formulating my thoughts, but it was um, created in the early 20th century as a means to create like a regulated system of taxi operation in, in New York city. And for many decades, the medallion's value was between 130 to $200,000. And then the Bloomberg administration came into power in 2001. The city had a $3.1 billion shortfall and, and it was in debt in that amount. And the Bloomberg administration pinpointed medallions as a means by which they could make up some of that shortfall and a means by which they could make up some revenue. And so over the next decade and some change, um, the city made over $855 million from the sale of new medallions. And the city ran these auctions. The city would set the opening bid, and the open and the, the price of a medallion went from two hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars, with the highest opening bid being set by the city uh, in that time at eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And so, this crisis comes from the fact that nothing about this market fundamentally changed uh, between the time when it was two hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars. It was just that the city saw it as a means by which of making revenue and artificially inflated the price of the medallion so as to make more revenue. And they did so knowingly because there were the agency, there was a memo that was circulated that said the price of the medallion is outstripping the actual worth of the medallion. And in concurrence with this, the city let in Uber and Lyft, let in 100,000 ride-sharing vehicles into that same market whose entire value was predicated on the fact that it was a limited license so as to guarantee future income. And so all of those things together, combined with the fact that um, the agreements that these drivers then got into were very predatory from the jump. In fact, lenders which had been uh, barred from operating in the housing market after 2008 were welcomed in by the city to operate in the medallion lending market. And then to top all of it off, you have the fact that native-born New Yorkers were not buying medallions at the rate the city wanted them to, and so active advertising went towards immigrant New Yorkers. And 94% of drivers are immigrants, and so if you couple the lack of you know, bureaucratic English language fluency with predatory lending agreements, with deceptive advertising from the city, with this idea that this is your ticket to the middle class and achieve the American dream you immigrated for, you have a situation such as this where nine drivers have taken their own lives in the last few years, and we have people hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and fighting for a chance to live. What was the reaction of uh, taxi drivers when that exorbitant like medallion price was implemented? And I, I also just want to, before you answer that question, note that 
We see similar behavior in California, where I live, a blue state, and uh, the failed policies and the increase of poverty as a result of those failed uh, policies uh, give the right wing fodder, right? Uh, they act as if these are uh, left wing policies that have been proven to fail. But in reality, I mean, this is more and more of regressive taxation as a result of the unwillingness to increase taxes for people at the very top. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Um... It's very much, it's very much tied to that. It's that, it's that issue of who is allowed to suffer, and who is allowed mm-hmm. to be targeted. I mean, even if you think about congestion pricing, which we've been waiting for for so many years, New York City has been waiting for it. But the only people that they have put that pricing on is taxi drivers, and there are so many different forms of taxation on a taxi driver that it, it and these are all regressive sales charges. Um, mm-hmm. And so it is quite interesting to see the different approaches the state has towards taxation, depending upon who suffers from it. And I think that, you know, your question to to what the reaction was when the medallion was selling at a million dollars, the issue was, is that at that time, as the medallion value was going up, drivers were made to feel as if this was a good thing for them because it meant that they had an asset that was appreciating and the city was telling them it would continue to appreciate because the city said more tourists were coming. This was actually better than the stock market they were telling them that this was the best deal they could find. And so every time the price would go higher, people thought this was a good thing. This, this meant that, that I have more value in the work that I do. And I have an ability to refinance my medallion and get a house for my family and, and achieve all the things that I was told that this medallion would help me achieve. The, the issue is that this was never going to be able to be paid for either by these drivers or, you know, even if Lyft and Uber hadn't come in, this was a this was a bubble that was about to burst. And that is, you know, why right now we're on the 10th day of our hunger strike. We are outside of City Hall. We go there every day. The drivers are there 24-7. I visit them every single day. And it is a hunger strike to get the city to change their debt relief plan, which they released earlier this year, saying that it would resolve this crisis. And it's completely insufficient. And to change that plan and to add something which would be a city-backed guarantee, which would guarantee these loans and ensure that if there was ever a default from a driver, the city would step in. And by guaranteeing these loans, removing the risk for these lenders, thereby allow, thereby incentivizing the lenders to actually offer affordable terms for these drivers. And can you, just for our audience to kind of get a sense of just how hard taxi drivers work, especially in New York city. Can you kind of describe like the day in the life of a taxi driver um, and especially the health risks that, you know, are kind of come with the job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a taxi driver typically works at least six days a week. They work 10, 12, 14, 16 hours. They get up in the morning and these days, because of the nature of the market, they typically start their day at an airport because that is one of the few places where there's still a guaranteed fare. And then from there, they drive usually into the city or you know Manhattan and look to pick up passengers for those 10, 12, 14, 16 hours. And the issue is every day when they start their day, they're already underwater in terms of the fees they have to pay just to be on the road. These are 50, 60, 70-year-old drivers, typically men. of whom are immigrants. And the act of being on the road for that long every day, it is also a, it has consequences for your physical health, not only for being in that position, not only for being stuck in a chair, but because 
there are no bathrooms that these drivers can find to use. There are so many restaurants which refuse to use them, let them use the bathrooms. There are so many complications that come from suppressing the, the need to go to the bathroom. There are so many different consequences that these men face for being the faces of our city. And what is so infuriating about this struggle is that our politicians traffic in the symbolism of taxis and the symbolism of immigrants. But when it comes to the substance of it, these men are being told to suffer on the margins and suffer out of view and in the outer boroughs and, and for many of them to die. And, you know, I am hopeful that we can, that we can find a way to a resolution. Um, but Make no mistake, it's only because these drivers have been organizing and protesting and are now on hunger strike. So you were uh, recently arrested uh, for your part in joining the hunger strike in solidarity. Can you talk about why you were arrested and, you know, like what, what happened that day? Absolutely. So on this was on Monday of this week. And by the way, just to let people know, this is the New York Taxi Worker Alliance sweatshirt. This is the ribbon that we wear um, if we're on hunger strike. So on, on Monday, we had started the hunger strike. Um, you know, maybe we were six or seven days into the hunger strike. And at that point, you know, it and, 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 in, and in weeks and months and years prior, it had been, become clear to us that the mayor is the decision maker on this issue. And the mayor has been obstructing the pursuit of justice for these working class drivers. And in the, the way often it, that it, it comes out in, in our political organizing is that we have to make clear to the public as to what is going on in the political sphere. And so if we were being obstructed there, then we had to obstruct day-to-day life in our city to bring attention to that fact. And so myself and five other elected officials and elected officials to be, we sat down right in front of City Hall and stopped traffic and we were arrested for it. And, you know, these tactics of civil disobedience, of being on a hunger strike, they are tactics of seeking to penetrate public consciousness so as to bring attention to the suffering that has largely been considered, you know, a niche issue for for so many in, in politics. And you, you've mentioned kind of the effect of ride share apps like Uber and Lyft. And, um, and you know, this, this problem, of course, is not going away with these apps and kind of what they're doing to our economy. And so, you know, as a left legislator trying to think through these problems, I mean, what do you think, what does meaningful reform or regulation look like or could look like when it comes to these apps? Well, I mean, these apps are... These apps make a loss every year because their business model is just about entirely removing all competition from their market. And then once they do so to operate the actual cost levels, which will be completely unaffordable for anyone and everyone. Um, I think that there's so many things to do. You know, you had mentioned earlier uh, the example of, of this being reminiscent of what's happening in California. We look to California to see both the possibilities of how we can take on rideshare companies and what they will do in return and how they will fight mm-hmm. back. I mean, these drivers are not contractors. They are employees when we're talking about Uber and Lyft. And I think that we have to pass state legislation that recognizing them as such. We have to pass the PRO Act at the national level. And then at the city level, there has to be limits on how many cars we have on the road, not just in the interests of workers actually earning a living wage. Also, because of the issues of climate change, we simply cannot continue to encourage more and more cars to be out there on the road. And then there is the city responsibility where if you if you have a closed market and you invite people to participate in it, you cannot then open it and then tell those earlier participants that 
hey, I'm sorry, but you took a speculative investment and it just didn't work out for you. Um, so I think that there can be a whole range of different ways in which we deal with the horrible na- nature of these rideshare companies. And frankly, you know, I say that as somebody who was elected this year and who was campaigning last year and had rideshare companies spend tens of thousands of dollars against me because of my platform of classifying these drivers as employees and not as contractors. Mm. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, we, we're now suffering the ramifications of uh, these rideshare apps uh, being successful in their ballot initiatives to reclassify uh, their workers. Um, and they're, they're really suffering the consequences of that, in some cases, making far less than minimum wage. Um, so I actually wanted to go back to what you briefly mentioned regarding uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, because, you know, from what I've seen, there hasn't really been much of a reaction from him, despite the fact that you have some pretty big name Democrats, uh, you know, raising awareness about it, including Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Has there been any response for Mayor Bill de Blasio? And if not, why do you think that is? I think that um, I have hope that that there will be progress thus far. You know, the the public line from the mayor is the same as it has been. Uh, Thankfully, because of the organizing that we have done and that NYTWA has really done, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, the the mayor has been asked this question again and again and again at interviews that he's at, at press conferences. And he's maintained the line that the debt relief plan they have is sufficient but I do think that, that, that there's, a, there's really a possibility of softening that. And I think that the reason we haven't seen it yet is because of the same reason we see so many issues kind of come to a halt in politics, which is that we're competing for attention against so many other things. And we're having to make it clear that we will not go away, that this is an issue that has to be resolved and the pressure will only ratchet up. And I think that um, it, it, it comes back to the fact that if you talk about a $65 million debt relief plan, it sounds on the surface of it as if it's sufficient. But if you get into the weeds of it, if you really look at the details, you're seeing that what the city is offering is actually worse than what the market is offering. And what I mean by that is that lenders had approached drivers saying that we can restructure your loan and you'll pay $1,600 a month. And the city comes out in the spring of this year saying $65 million, we're going to launch a relief plan. This is going to have eligible drivers receive $20,000 as a cash down payment towards the restructuring their loans. That down payment will incentivize lenders to restructure those loans. And then it tells lenders in the details, you can charge up to $2,000 a month in these new loans. So if a lender was offering a driver $1,600 and now they're saying we can give you twenty dollars and you can actually increase your offer to the driver by $400, it's not, government is not supposed to mimic or be a weaker version of the market, it's supposed to take it on. And that is that—that that is one of the real fundamental issues that we've had in this fight is that so much of what I'm talking about, so much of this is in the weeds of the fight and having to get into the weeds and explain that these weeds, while they may not seem that important on their own, these are the weeds that will contribute to more drivers losing their entire livelihoods and their lives to this crisis. And, you know, so we're in the midst of Striketober, of course, and we're seeing so many private sector uh, workers go on strike across the country. And, you know, many of these are taking place in kind of the traditional industrial workplace setting, which, of course, is a welcome site. But I think, you know, taxi workers don't really fit neatly into some of our, our ideas of what, you know, organized workers look like. I'm sure there's probably many in the audience that are surprised to hear that there is an organization of taxi workers. Um, so can you kind of talk about 
not just the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, but what do you see as a role of these kind of non-traditional labor organizations in the future? We have to organize every single place that we can. And unions are the most fundamental example of organizing. And I think that it is the absence of organizing that allows capital and allows the state to oppress the working class. And I think that the future, we see so much of the future of employment for so many of my constituents and just people across this country in the more kind of informal economy, the gig economy. These are places where the union, we don't have as many unions um, who have membership within those worlds. And then we also have the threat of basically company unions, like the Independent Drivers Guild that receives money from Uber that ostensibly is organizing on behalf of Uber drivers, but is really, you know, ensuring that the organizing never goes to a certain level. Um, I, this year in Albany, Uber and Lyft tried to pass a bill to create company unions under the guise of, you know, um, sectoral bargaining and to gut the minimum wage for rideshare drivers in, in New York City. So we have to both be on the lookout for how corporations will try and take advantage of this new frontier. And we also have to continue to organize to ensure that these workers who are oftentimes have, you know, overlapping identities that allow them even more to be oppressed by capital, that they are organized and that they have the support of existing organized labor and um, organizations such as DSA and elected officials. So final question for you. It's it's a little different from what we've been talking about, but um, the New York State Department of uh, Environmental Conservation just rejected the NRG's uh, proposal to build a fracked gas peaker in Astoria. Can you talk about your organizing um, and also how you plan to continue to transform your district um, as a, a socialist in office? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I, I was... This is, I don't know if I'm, tell me if I'm not allowed to show this, but this is a campaign mailer we sent out last year in the course of my campaign. And on the back, one of the promises was to oppose all fossil fuel infrastructure and this plant being the fundamental piece of infrastructure that was being proposed for the district. And so this has been a fight that we have been involved in for over a year. And our involvement has spanned from, you know, politicizing it in the course of the primary election, uh, attending rallies and marches. We organized volunteers through our office to send over 7,000 postcards to our neighbors across the district, encouraging them to submit a public comment. We called 36,000 households across my district to do, encouraging them to do exactly the same thing. We canvassed at subway stations. We canvassed through small businesses. We canvassed in the park. We put up posters everywhere with, uh, with URLs where people could, could submit this public comment. We did everything and anything that we could. And I'm also really proud of the fact that I organized to, to broaden our electoral coalition, even getting, again, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to come in and oppose this plant. And I think that this victory is a testament to the organizing we did through, through my office, through a larger coalition, but fundamentally through the, to the organizing that was done by DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group, which actually was the organization and the working group that found this issue and made it from something that would have typically been procedural and made it political. And all of it resulted in more than 6,600 comments being submitted for a plant, which would typically get a couple hundred comments at that, you know, at best. And 85% of those 6,600 comments were in opposition. And I've been told by people at the agency and at the state level that it is that organizing, it is that large of a coalition 
that allowed for the agency to take such a step to reject this plan. And I think that, you know, organizing gets the goods. DSA should really be credited with the work that it did um, to make this into an issue. And I think it paves the way for New York to finally get back into the idea of being a climate leader in this country, because in the last two years, we haven't passed any major legislation regarding climate in Albany. And hopefully this decision is the catalyst for um, passing public power at the state level so we can have publicly controlled and democratically operated utilities here in New York State. Sounds good. Yeah. Let me just let me just close by saying I, I love I love that. I, I love, you know, especially when on a national level, you're hearing all of these pretty depressing stories. You're hearing about the reconciliation bill getting chopped up into bits and pieces with provisions being completely taken out um, on a local level with with the organizing that's taking place. There are some pretty significant gains. So thanks for sharing that with us and, and continuing to fight. It's really important. You're so welcome. And I would just say to, to anyone that is feeling that sense of hopelessness, I, I totally understand. I used to feel it about the climate crisis. But and, and it's as you said, you know, you get what you organize for. And at the yeah. local level, you can really see the fruits of your labor. And if you had told me a year and a half ago that we would win this, I don't know if I would have fully believed you. I wanted it. I believed in it. But I don't know if I expected it. And that was because I knew we were going up against the eighth largest carbon biggest eighth largest carbon emitter of U.S. companies across the country. They had spent $600,000 in lobbying elected officials and sending mailers across the country. And here we were, a ragtag group of eco-socialists in alliance with elected officials and other climate organizations, and we beat them. And this could happen in your city, in your town, in your state, um, it, and it'll only happen if, if you make it happen. So uh, there, there really is hope from, from the organizing we do, and I have a lot of hope for, for what will happen in neighboring states and, and future elections and how we can continue to get lefties across the country in office and, and doing the right work. Very well said. Well, thank you so much again for the work you do. We need a lot more legislators like you that are on the front lines with workers. So thank you so much, Zoran. You're, you're very welcome. I have I have ideas of a couple of others. but I've Yeah, me too. Ideas. But yeah, <laughs> thanks. All right. All right. Well, why don't we bring on Kale, um, and now would be a great time for you guys to send in uh, some of your super chat questions or comments. Uh, we'll get to as many as we can. Um, Kale, how you doing? Yeah, uh, great. I'm so glad that Zoran was able to make it. Uh, people should check out Zoran. He's like one of our best electeds. He's also one of our funniest. I told you all <laughs> fracking was wrong, but you didn't want to listen. Uh, but he's he truly is one of our best in the country, and so I'm very happy to have him on. Uh yeah, so I'm here because um, we have a few minutes. Um, we really have a half hour, but I don't know if we're going to do a half hour. But we'll do like we'll do a few questions if anyone has any questions, um, uh, any super chats, or if you're a YouTube member, you can just submit a, a question just as a YouTube member, uh, and I will see. Uh, but yeah, um, today's show I, it was very comprehensive. We kind of moved from one thing to the next right. very seamlessly, and. Yeah, you know, um, surprise, surprise, labor is the thread connecting all. But you know, what do I know? What do I know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think, like, again, I think Zoran is is kind of emblematic of like what we would hope a uh, socialist in office would spend their time doing. That mm-hmm. right, they remain so intimately connected with uh, organizing organized groups like DSI and others um, that they spend most of their time like either 
on a picket line or on, you know, in a protest uh, with workers in not just their district, obviously, but across the city right now. Uh, and and then, you know, the fact that uh, it's this combination of like having the the inside, you know, of being able to legislate and then having the support, having the strength of workers and organizers on the ground that enables them to be a good elected that like this, this is kind of part of, it's not the only thing, but it's part of the concoction that can effectively overcome to an extent, not perfectly, but to a, a very good extent, uh, the massive pressures that, you know, the government in capitalism puts mm-hmm. on politicians that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, everyone thinks that they have the the wherewithal to withstand these pressures and these forces and these massive companies um, and the fact that like these companies live in their districts, not maybe not the people who own the companies, but the, the companies themselves are employing people in these districts. And so the the employer can always wage war against politicians by saying, yeah, I'll just like increase unemployment in your district. What are you going to do about it? And right. Right. having the organized base underneath you is, is one of the most critical things. Like maybe not even, I think it's ne- a necessary condition for right. social because you know it's like even zoran as great as he is he could not he can't just get in there and create a taxi workers alliance or right. create a hunger strike you know he's he's building on what what has been created kind of before him yeah exactly Let's see what what questions we got yeah um i'm looking for questions there was a super chat earlier actually that i can pull up now mm-hmm. um from parker who wrote earlier Throwback to this time last year on Halloween when Nando dressed up as a chicken and Kale dressed up as some sort of green bug. Haha, <laughs> I don't remember the green bug. I, I don't think, either. I yeah. do remember the chicken though. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was not a green bug. I'm, I don't know if this is, I don't know if there's something going on where I'm wearing green today and, and you now are retroactively projecting back like, oh, Kale, he's, he's a bug, green, you know, well, that I kind Maybe. of... I appreciate this. Are you dressing up this year, Kale? No. <laughs> no? Yeah. I'm I'm such a downer when it comes to Halloween. Like, I don't really care about it at all. Um, My last costume you, was a Bernie costume with the Just impression. Nice. Yeah, it was pretty good. But you it's been. Bernie? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, it has been a while. Yeah, I know. It's. It's strange. Are people going out? Or I'm asking the chat or just whoever's listening right now to the ether. Like, are you going out? Like, what's, is, is it weird that, I mean, obviously things are semi-open and obviously people are getting COVID booster shots and everything, but it's still very strange. I think there's like this, you know, everyone is feeling kind of the push and pull of, you know, mm-hmm. on the one hand, like, you know, especially if you're vaccinated, wanting to, you know, move on with your life and and go back to like the things that are enjoyable and then you know on the other hand like still having to take covid pretty seriously so it's it can be frustrating um and so yeah for me i I feel like the hardest thing that i've run into lately is just trying to remember the lessons i've learned throughout the pandemic like the not saying yes to everything, like really protecting the free time that I have and not like letting things take over. Like it's, 
my life is pretty much back to normal. And that's not, that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing at all. Like the commute is awful. Like hour and a half of my day gone, just sitting in a car. Like, I don't know how to really respond to it. Um, but I can totally understand why the pandemic made workers really reconsider priorities and how much they want like their work life to change. It's really, really difficult to push back against things going back to normal though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question that we got in from Erie Mysteria who writes, the New York times is a headline. Uh, what do anti-vaxxers and hunger striking cabbie drivers have in common? The answer that they want recognition uh, is getting through media propaganda more important or feasible than getting corrupt politicians to act. Well, I mean, I, I would say, I think, I mean, part of strategy is getting through getting media attention. That's one part of getting politicians to act. I mean, they, you know, it's not everything, but they do respond to that, um, you know, that kind of pressure. Um, I mean, it's kind of a dumb headline, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we could sure. agree on that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily an either or, you know, like, but, you know, I think any campaign, especially like a grassroots working class campaign, like the media attention can't be your only strategy because, you know, that they're, they're not going to focus on it much. Um, you, I think your window of opportunity is pretty small. So like you're going to, you need to rely on other, other um, tactics, but. Yeah. I mean, the media, in my opinion, like corporate media just kind of helps to run cover for corrupt politicians. Right. So they like serve as like an extension of, the people who or the team that works for lawmakers by doing PR for them. Um, and that's that is a problem. But I think we've just kind of gotten to a point in the country where people are not so trusting of legacy media sources. And it's exactly because of headlines like that. Um, so, you know, it, I don't I don't really know how to answer your question, to be quite honest with you. I think the only thing that's been proven to work in the past is labor power is workers doing exactly what John Deere workers are doing today. I mean, look at the lack of legacy media coverage on that strike. You know, a lot of um, independent news sources have been covering it, but for the most part, you don't really see in-depth daily reporting um, on the John Deere workers strike. Uh, Jonah Furman's been doing a great job uh, on the labor notes website. Definitely follow him on Twitter. It's like minute by minute updates on not just John Deere workers, but you know, all the other, uh, workers who are threatening to strike, like the Kaiser nurses. Um, and it's sad. It's sad that we have to rely on independent sources uh, to get this kind of information, but they exist and they're doing a great job. Yeah. And and the commenter who sent us in the super chat follows up that uh, very upset at the headline, such a blatant, obvious, I uh, try to turn people against labor unions, but I don't think most readers realize what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and um, like Paul and Anna have said, uh, you know, I mean, I, I agree with everything they've said and, and just would add that, um, you know, with a lot of these things, it's, it's, if it's not already obvious enough uh, for people who are especially, I mean, organizers know this more than anything, because they're actually faced with these challenges and these problems immediately is that, uh, you know, recognition is important, it's useful, um, but it's a means to an end. It's not like the, the recognition, just getting people to realize that there's like an injustice in the world doesn't really get you very far um, because people right. know that because most people are working people and most working people feel those injustices every single day. The, the, the challenge isn't to get them to realize that there's an injustice. The challenge is for organizers specifically 
part, you know, part of our job is um, what we do on YouTube is to kind of help like explain what's going on. Sometimes, sometimes it's news coverage. Sometimes it's like an analysis of like how to better understand what's going on. Um, and that's very useful. Like we need that as well, but for an organizer, the job isn't part of it is to explain what's going on, but it's really, they don't have to explain that like to the people that you know what's going on, what, like who are affected by this, like what's happening to them. They already know it's to try to help, uh, you know, assist in the process of building actual strategies to then overcome that situation that you as an organizer, if you're actually, you know, useful or good at what you're doing, uh, are putting yourself into these situations and then trying to be to your best effort, you know, in service of, uh, you know, trying to figure out how do we get from where we are to somewhere else. And so, of course, you know, the taxi cab workers want recognition for what's going on, but like, they don't want, you know, the, 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 there is no victory in, you know, the mayor or whoever else, someone in power saying like, wow, your situation's bad. That's right. yeah. I totally get it. You know, like solidarity <laughs> comrade, you know, like that's, that doesn't do anything of course. Like, and to the extent that they want recognition from a general public, like, the idea is that hopefully the public would be, you know, useful in pressuring the politicians. But like we've been saying, I mean, there's so many pressures that that fall onto politicians, especially, you know, mayors in the opposite direction that, you know, they as like human beings might feel horrible about the situation, but as lawmakers are not going to do anything about it. And so that's where, you know, things like the hunger strike that Zoran and others are taking part of, um, you have to escalate into these kinds of tactics where, you know, on the one hand, you're placing a far greater burden on public officials to say, like, look at the actual damage you're causing right now by you, you know, like being swayed in the other direction to not support us. Um, and then this is where historically this is where unions have said, you know, like the highest escalation is to just withhold your labor and say, you know, you will not like the companies and society will not make a profit until we get some concession towards our demands and understanding it in terms of like costs of like who is who is imposing the most costs right now is probably the more the much more important question to ask and to, to strategize around than, you know, how many people understand what's going on, how many people can, you know, like fully feel the, you know, the emphasis that we're trying to place on this injustice in the world. Um, that's useful. It's helpful. And you want people to to respond to these things. But ultimately, you, you do that in service of trying to impose a cost on whoever can make a decision to, to, to you know, get your, you know, to ultimately, you know, lead to you getting your demands. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, LJ writes, can weekends interview the silly, disgusting free market child I was, labor guy? <laughs> I think Anna should debate him, actually. I would love um, to. Yeah. yeah. Let's, why don't we reach out? I would love to debate. <laughs> we should do that more often, actually. I think that would be really like fun to do. Not every week, but every so often we should just have some, you know, pro-capitalist on to debate, debate ideas. <laughs> It's funny, all these people like that, I'm sorry to say, but like he he literally looks just like I would imagine the head of that group looked like. You know what I mean? If you would have yeah. said, draw a sketch of the head of the, what is it called? The Liberty, Liberty League? Uh, learn group. Liberty. Yeah. Learn Liberty, right. Yeah. I, I would probably I draw. Like, you, got a, you got some Liberty to learn there, Paul. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> lots to learn. Um, I would probably draw him, you know. 
They By always the way, look exactly like that. Speaking of debates, uh, we had Ben Burgess on last week to talk about, um, he debated uh, Charlie Kirk, but the video wasn't available yet. And I had debated Ben Shapiro. We spent the bulk of the conversation discussing that because the video was available. Um, but go check out uh, the Ben Burgess, Charlie Kirk debate, because now it's available. Uh, ben did a three hour long stream kind of breaking it down. I watched it live and then I watched it again because it was such a great, it was a great debate. Um, mostly because Ben kicked ass. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. It's, it's like, I of course have high expectations for Ben because I, I mean, he's the guy who gives us the argument, right? He's the one with the logic for the left. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Where would we be? Where would our arguments be if it wasn't for Ben Burgess? No, I I had no arguments before him. (laughs) I mean, but nothing. I mean, truly, seriously. I mean, Ben's like a very smart guy. Um, and he spends like the endurance that he has to, to, like do the amount of research and the amount of work, the amount of output he produces every week between articles and books and shows and other show, other appearances and other shows. And, um, you know, but so there's this high expectation of like who he is as like an individual, um, and like his under, you know, his like politics and his worldview and all that. Uh, but he killed it against like Charlie. I mean, like there's, you know, if you've only seen a few clips, like every clip captures this, like the fact that yeah. like Ben was so sharp and like, and understood exactly what Charlie's argument was maybe even better than Charlie at points. Totally. And, and <laughs> like, that's like, I think he gives us a very good example. I mean, obviously I'm not, obviously Anna's debate with Ben Shapiro the week before, but I think like, you know, we have two really good examples of like how to effectively deal with these politics, like both, you know, in real time, like how to like, you know, make an argument against like what they're saying, but also that it's, it's not that scary. You can talk to these people. Uh, yeah, can, totally. Yeah. You know, right. they're just like, they're just other people. And like, <laughs> most of the time, like you're not going to be de- debating a, a Ben or a Charlie, like, you know, it might be, you know, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be talking with, you know, like a, uh, an uncle or an aunt or something at a Thanksgiving dinner. And, um, and something will get brought up. And it's like, it's okay to talk. Like it's, I hate this, like this, this attitude of like, don't discuss politics at Thanksgiving or something. Right. It's like, no, right. just. What just else like, are we going to talk about? I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Just like have a. Totally. Yeah. Have a I, conversation. I think, you know what you I think, think. I think the important thing, and this was something I kind of had to learn because my, my debate style prior to how I debate now was a little more aggressive and. I think off-putting to people who disagree, right? So it's, it's I think, a skill to be able to engage in a debate in a way where sometimes it doesn't even come across as a debate. It might come across as like a conversation, right? But by doing it that way, I think that you open yourself up to a larger group of people who are willing to listen, you know? Um, sometimes like yelling at the other side, not so effective. Almost yeah. never effective. Right. <laughs> so you heard it here. Start prepping now, everyone, for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, watch some debates. Yes. Get your debate game up. Watch Anna and Ben. Like, again, I'm like not, I'm not just being flattering. I'm not trying to flatter, like genuinely like very good examples of like how to actually make these arguments. So thank you, Kale. All right. Well, um, thank you to everyone who's watching, especially Paul Prescott, who uh, stepped in today for Nando. Uh, But for those of you missing Nando, he will be back next week. 
And uh, Kale, as always, thanks for all your hard work and making our Decode segments possible. Everyone go subscribe to the Jacobin YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag. And if you haven't already, of course, you should be subscribed to Jacobin Magazine itself. Any final words before we go, guys? No, just let Striketober roll into Strikevember. That's that's what I want. Someone will come up with a better slogan, but <laughs> let's let's keep it rolling. Yeah, do what you can to support the whether it's the the taxi workers in New York right. or the strikes around the country. Um, Again, just show up. Even showing up with water, that's better better than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. we love you guys. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye.